want to ask you, have you ever gotten advice in your life that when you first hear it, it sounds really counterintuitive? Somebody says something to you and you go, that can't be right. Is that, is that really true? I was thinking about different things I've heard and you could probably fill in the blanks with different ones. But one of them, actually, I was thinking about Chip and Lynn Sweat. <laughs> Chip's looking at me like, I warned Lynn that I would mention her name. I didn't warn Chip, but Chip and Lynn have owned a company that you can go get your body composition tested. They weigh you in this big tub and you get in there and you go in and it tells you all this information about you, like your, how many calories you burn and how much of your body is fat and how much is muscle and all this stuff. And you go to that and and Lynn will do that for you. And then she'll give you this readout and she'll tell you some things and you go, okay, well, I want to lose weight and I want to be healthy and I want to do these things. And I've heard Lynn say this a hundred times. She'll go, I'm going to look at this and then I'm going to tell you you're not eating enough. And you're like, what? I want to lose 20 pounds. And she'll go, yeah, 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 but you're not eating enough. And what she'll tell you if you listen to her and and I won't explain all of it because I won't be able to explain it well like she could. But what she'll tell you is that if you're eating healthy, good things, you have to eat a lot of it to be enough to, to build muscle and to be healthy and to continue to do that. And so you'll hear her say that you've got to eat more. And you're thinking, but I want to lose weight. How would that work? And it's counterintuitive at first. And then she explains it to you and you go, oh, OK, I, I think that makes sense. Or, or, or maybe uh, today in, in today's market and the way things are going, a lot of people are selling their houses right now. Right. You sell your house. Prices are high. I'm going to make a bunch of money on a house. But if you've heard it said before, like when you go to sell your house, that sometimes it's better to list it lower. You'll actually get more if you list it lower than if you list it too high. Have you ever heard a real estate agent tell you that if you price it out of the range and you do too much, nobody wants to look at it. But sometimes if you price it lower, you get a whole bunch of offers and you actually get more by pricing it for less. And so it's kind of counterintuitive. You think, well, I want to get the most out of my house. But the reality is you probably should less, uh, list it for less. Same thing with eating more. Eat more to lose weight. And you go, well, wait a second, how do those work? And you could probably fill in the blank if you think about it, a whole lot of things that you hear and on the face you think that's the opposite of what I would normally think. And I think that's what happens a lot of times when we read through the Sermon on the Mount with Jesus. He says a lot of things that seem to fly in the face of the way that we normally think. He says a whole lot of things that you go, wait a second, that can't possibly be right. That can't be the truth of the way things work. And so oftentimes what happens is in our world that we are so bombarded with messages every single day that are counter to what the word of God says, that sometimes the word of God starts to look like, well, wait a second, that can't be right. And that's really true in what we're going to look at today and what Jesus says. That the summary statement over this of him saying, blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. Our world will tell us that doesn't work. And then we're going to look at some different things that he says in his teaching that kind of build that up and help us understand that. But that's really what I want us to think about today. This idea of blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. That Jesus is saying be being meek is imperative to being part of his kingdom. You go, well, how does that work? Because our world tells us the exact opposite. And so the way I want us to look at this passage today is we're just going to ask this question. We're going to say, as we think about this idea of being meek, what is it? How have we missed it? And then how do we recover it? What is it? How have we missed it? And how do we recover it? If it's an important thing, and I think it is because Jesus tells us, blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. And we'll talk about what that means. But let's think that through together. So let's first start with what is it? If you ask anybody, I go around the room and say, what does it mean to be meek? And I think there's a phrase that often comes to mind when you say it. We usually say something like, well, meek and mild. 
right? You put those together. They're almost always heard together. Uh, you could go and open a dictionary or I guess nobody actually uses a dictionary. You could ask your phone, what does meek mean? And it would give you a definition, right? And it would pop up and it would tell you what it means. And what it would tell you is it means to be mild or submissive, to, to get run over, to sometimes be let people take advantage of you. I actually looked up several definitions and they were all in that range in different ways. And so is that what Jesus is saying here? Is that what he's talking about biblically when he says to be meek, that you're mild and that you easily let people run over you? And I don't think it is. I don't think that's a good, healthy definition of what the Bible's talking about when it says being meek. And so we got to start with what is the definition? Because sometimes we can have an idea in our mind and that's the way we're thinking about it. And we totally miss what he's actually saying. And so what does it mean to be meek in the way that the Bible talks about it? And I think it's to have a strength that's contained an assuredness of who you are, or, or if we put it in biblical terms of whose you are. So much so that there's a, a quiet confidence. There's no pretense that what you see is what you get. But at the same time, you don't feel the need to live out with bombast and malice and vengeful spirit. There's moderation in the way you respond. Maybe a good way to say it is you're a person who thinks before you speak. That you can hear what's going on and you can see things in the world and you can even see things that are really wrong. And you're still thoughtful in the way you respond. And so it's this strength contained, this idea. But I want you to think about, biblically speaking, the spiritual reality of that and how we grow up into that with everything that Jesus has been saying to this point in the Sermon on the Mount that we've talked about. And so we've been looking at the Beatitudes, those blessed are statements at the beginning, and then kind of looking at what he teaches in the rest of this sermon. Matthew 5 through 7 is all one sermon. And we're letting the sermon kind of help fill in what he's talking about in those Beatitudes. And so we've talked about blessed are the poor in spirit, and I said the very first week, blessed are the poor in spirit are those that have an honest evaluation of themselves, that understand who we are and our, and our faults and our sins and where we've made mistakes and where we've blown it. And we see that and we have an understanding of that. And then last week we said, blessed are those who mourn. And we talked about mourning the sin that we see and the issues in the world at large, but also recognizing that those things that are in the world are in me. And my sinfulness and mourning over the sinfulness that I have before a holy, righteous God. And those two things really help play into this idea of being meek. Because if you're poor in spirit and you're mourning and you're recognizing with, with uh, clarity your shortcomings and your faults and who you are and those things, then it brings you to this place of having a meekness. And I want you to think about why. How does that get you to a quiet confidence if you understand how sinful and broken you are? Well, that's where the gospel comes in and you have to bring the two together. Uh, we were just talking in the new member class this morning about we want to be in the center of the biblical tension. And so there's a prayer that's printed in your bulletin. It's in there every single week. If you take a bulletin, there's four prayers printed in our bulletin each week that have to relate as, as they relate to uh, praying as we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And one of those prayers is a prayer of belief. And I love the way it's written there. And what it says in the prayer belief talks about coming to a place of understanding that I'm more sinful than I ever dared to admit that I'm more sinful than I ever wanted to acknowledge, but that in Jesus, I am more loved and accepted than I could ever hope. And that's the center of the biblical tension where the gospel is such good news that we are more sinful than we would ever want anyone to know. 
but that because of Jesus and what he's done for us, we're more loved and accepted than we could ever hope for. And it's in the center of that tension we live as believers. We recognize the way we were apart from God and what that looks like in our sinfulness. But now Jesus has come to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And we live in the center of that tension that we are loved and accepted. And it's completely and totally by what Jesus has done. And so there's an assurance that comes with that. The creator God of the universe has saved me by his grace, not my doing Not by how good of a person I am, not because I hold everything together. In fact, being poor in spirit is the first step to entering into the kingdom and recognizing that I need God to do it for me. But when I come to that place of understanding, it leads to being meek. It leads to this assurance. It it leads to this quiet confidence that you know whose you are, that God has got me in this and he loves me fully and completely and I can trust him. That he will bring all things and set them to right. And I can trust him in that. And so in a world where so many things are out of control or seemingly out of control. And we feel that and people attack and people are ugly. You can still be meek when you're trusting who God is and what he's done for you in Jesus. And so that definition kind of comes together. This quiet confidence. I I was thinking about this with a a friend of mine that I used to play basketball. I hadn't thought about him in, in many years. When Joanne and I first moved to South Carolina... Uh, it was 20 years ago when we moved there and she was in residency and I was in seminary and I used to go play basketball at the YMCA, I don't know, three or four times a week. I think about 20 years ago, I was playing with a guy that is my age now. <laughs> and I remember thinking, going in there, if you've ever played basketball, you've ever played a sport that's this pretty intense. This game that I played in was a lot of really good players and it was pretty intense And it was a lot of like kind of puffing up your chest and showing how good you are. And you got to prove yourself every time. And a lot of like talking trash and all those kind of things. But there was this one guy that didn't say anything. And he was really good, like really good. But he was about my age now. So I was late 20s. He was like 45, but he was still the best guy. And Barry was like about 6'4", and he could shoot from anywhere, but he never said a word. People would talk trash. They'd get in his face. He wouldn't say anything. He'd just hit a shot. And so one day I said to this guy, we were sitting there and I said, what's the deal with Barry? Like that dude's really good. Like he's old and he's still good. You know, like at the time when you're in your twenties, somebody who's 40 is really old. And, uh, this guy goes, oh, you don't know. Uh, when Barry was in college, he led the nation in scoring in division one basketball. I was like, what? (laughs) He led the nation. Yeah. He said he averaged like 28 points a game. I was like, really? And then he said, oh, and then he went and played for the New York Knicks for like four years. And I was like, what? Barry played for the Knicks? And it's like all of a sudden, now part of it was his his demeanor and who he was and whatever. But I always thought he wasn't talking trash and he wasn't saying, he didn't need to prove himself to a bunch of slubs like us that were playing basketball with him. He knew he was the best player there, right? There was this quiet confidence about the way he played. And when you understand who Jesus is and what he's done for you, that you are his, that you are more loved and accepted than you could ever hope. What comes with that is a quiet confidence, a strength that's contained. I know the creator God of the universe and he loves me and he's done for me what I could never do for myself. And that's where meekness starts to take root. It's hard, It's rooted in the heart of the gospel. And so when we talk about what true meekness is, it's understanding that I do have my faults and I'm not perfect and I don't have all the answers. But I have been purchased and and, and taken in by the one who does have all the answers. And I can trust him in that. 
And so that's the first thing when we think about meekness, truly what it means biblically. But then the second thing is, why have we missed it so greatly in our culture? Right. You look around today and this idea of meekness, people go, that's not how the world works. That doesn't work. That's crazy. Meek and mild, you're going to get run over and people take advantage of you. That doesn't work. But Jesus says here, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. It's a pretty big statement. I think what Jesus is talking about is when he returns and his kingdom is reigning in the fullness of what we see, that the meek will inherit the earth, that we will be ruling and reigning with him. We'll be in his kingdom for eternity. And I think he's making a connection there in the future of our relationship with him and being uh, fully in his kingdom when he brings it in fullness in his second coming. And so there's a clear tie there that Jesus associates with being meek and a saving faith. Now, I'm not saying your level of meekness saves you, but if you understand the gospel, there will be a meekness that starts to take root. And that's what it's talking about. But the problem is we miss it so often in our culture because we are continually discipled away from this. The world is bombarding us with messages that this is not true. That that won't work. And that's not unique to our culture. It was certainly the case in Jesus's day. If you look closely at everything he says here in chapter five, you'll see it six different times. But he says it in verse 21 and what we read and in verse 38 and in verse 43. You have heard it said. You have heard it said. You have heard it said. He says it over and over. You have heard it said. But now I say to you. And what he's saying is your culture is teaching you this. And it's teaching you this and it's telling you this. But now I am telling you this is what it looks like to live in the fullness of my kingdom. And he's correcting that. And what Jesus is saying is that what we hear in our culture often come becomes the common sense of the way we think. We're bombarded with messages that would tell us the opposite of what God's word says all the time. You read here and he says, you have heard it said, verse 43, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Could have taken that from a headline today. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. If those people over there don't vote the way that you vote, they're the problem. Right? That's the way our culture is today. We have become so divided. If those people over there don't believe the way you believe, you should cancel them and have nothing to do with them and never talk to them again. Right? I mean, is that not love your neighbor and hate your enemy? We see it everywhere. We're bombarded with that message every place we looked. And I'm convinced of this. I really am at this point in my life. If you spend more time listening to the news, whatever that is, you spend more time uh, on the radio, listening to it or satellite radio, whatever you use or, or watching the television and what they're showing you and what they're if you spend more time intake of that than you do spending time in God's word and in prayer and with other believers In community, you're going to have a really, really hard time of living out the things that God's called you to. Because you are going to be bombarded with messages that tell you the opposite of what Jesus says here. At every turn. And everything that you see. And you can't have this just cavalcade of stuff washing over you every day. Hate those people. And this is the way it works. And meekness will never get you anywhere. But that's what happens is we take in all these things and it overflows on us and we let them kind of operate. We let that become the common sense in the way we live. We go, yeah, well, that doesn't work. 
When we read what Jesus says and we go, that's, that's obviously not what he meant because that wouldn't work. And all of a sudden, the word of God, right? We said at the very beginning, Jesus is the word of God, the logos, the divine truth that created all things, that holds them into existence, that knows exactly how you were made in the way that we're supposed to function. And we hear him speak and we go, well, that can't work. You hear how ludicrous that is? That the God of the universe speaks and tells us the way he created us and the way he created his world to work. And we go, well, that doesn't work because that's not how the world works. But we do that and we miss it. We miss things like meekness because we are so discipled by our culture. We let our culture stand over God's word. And so oftentimes we miss it in that way. But the second way I'd tell you that we miss it and we, this happens a lot. As we're bombarded by these things and they start to become the normal way that we think, because that's what we're hearing all the time. And then we start to operate like that and we start to walk in our flesh rather than in the spirit. You know how to make that distinction. The Bible talks about that walking in your flesh versus walking in the spirit. You can go read it in, in Galatians chapter five. One of the most instructive passages for me personally in my life as I read through Galatians five. It's a check of my heart. Am I walking right now in the spirit or am I walking in the flesh? It says if I'm walking in the flesh, it'll be jealousy and fits of anger and rivalry and strife and dissension and divisions and envy. And it starts to go through those things. And I feel those things at times in my heart. And suddenly I'm alerted to that's my flesh. It's not the spirit. I'm not walking by the spirit when I hate those people over there. And I love, I love my neighbors, but I hate my enemies because what it says right after that is you'll know the fruit of the spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And when I get in this thing where I'm angry all the time and I don't like that person and they're wrong and I'm going to let them have it, I'm going to tell, I'm walking by my flesh. And we do that regularly because we're being discipled away from what God's word says by what we're being bombarded with in our world. And then our flesh goes, yeah, I kind of like that. I like what that guy's saying. And that's pretty good. And then what we do is we then take the Bible and we try to make it fit under those things. Well, it's okay to be really rude and ugly if the situation calls for it. It's the way you get things done. It's the opposite of what Jesus says, but it starts to make sense to us because of what our culture says and the way our flesh operates. And then all of a sudden we've got that ball rolling and suddenly we open up God's word and we go, well, that can't work. That's ridiculous. I'll give you two examples right here in what he's saying. Right? He talks about uh, you have heard it said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Right. You see that today and you say that to people. No, no, no. You need to love the people that are very dear. You need to love your enemies. And people are like, get that. That doesn't work. Or you see verse 38 where he says, you have heard it said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. People go, that doesn't work. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. We're, we're all about that. Right. Which, by the way, full disclosure, that's from the Bible. That's in the Old Testament, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. Jesus says, you've heard it said. He's actually quoting Leviticus. But in the Old Testament, that idea, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, was to stop escalating violence. Within the community of the Israelites, and they, had, they were not just a religious community. They had their own government, and these things were set up, and there were rules and laws for them 
operating in that way, but they were to cut things off instead of this person wrongs you. And so you escalate and then you escalate and it goes higher and higher and higher. It was to kind of cut it off. But what had happened is they had taken that idea of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and they had made it in their flesh and in the culture they were living in. They made it uh, a way in which they could continue to retaliate against others. To continue to escalate the violence and continue to do that. And so Jesus says, you have heard it said eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And he goes, that's not the way it works in my kingdom. And says someone slaps you, you turn to on the other side. And everybody goes, whoa, what? We don't like that. It's ingrained in us from the time we're a little bitty, right? Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. I can't tell you how many times in my house I've said to one of my boys, don't hit your brother. And you know what the answer is? He hit me first. You didn't see what he did to me. And think about what they're saying. I'm completely justified to hit him back because he hit me first. Right? That is so ingrained in our way of thinking. And it's so much so that when we hear what Jesus says here, we go, whoa, that's pretty tough. And it's not just little boys. <laughs> I remember going very clearly to a movie years ago. I'd say it's probably 15 years ago. I was in a community group with five or six guys. I think there are five other guys. And we all went to a movie together one night. I went to see a Clint Eastwood movie. Right? And we go to the, see this movie. In the Clint Eastwood movie, Clint Eastwood's 80 years old at the time this movie comes out. And so he's like 100 now, but at the time he was only 80. But he was he's the star of it and he directs it in this Clint Eastwood movie. <clears throat> and it's typical Clint Eastwood. If you've seen a Clint Eastwood movie, he's a, an old war veteran who's angry at everybody. And his wife has died and he's like this curmudgeon. And, and in the movie, he befriends like some people that are... You know, kind of a sweet story. He befriends his neighbors and he gets to be friends with them. And throughout the movie, he kind of learns about their culture and he kind of softens up and he starts to like them. And then something really bad happens to his friends. And the scene is set, right? You already know where this is going. It's Clint Eastwood, right? What's he going to do? He's going to get revenge, right? He's Clint Eastwood. And so the movie sets up that his friends get wronged and this horrible thing happens and he's going to take it upon himself and he's going to fix it. And he's telling everybody, basically, I'm about to go kill them all. And you're watching the movie and you're like, okay, that's what happens with Clint Eastwood. And it gets to the end of the movie and he doesn't. I remember sitting in the movie theater and watching this movie and it gets to the very end. And instead of killing everybody, he doesn't kill anybody. And he lays his life down. And the movie ends and everything kind of works out. And you go, what was that? I remember sitting in the movie theater and going, I can't believe a Clint Eastwood movie just ended with him basically laying his life down and showing a picture of what Jesus is like. And I got up and I walked out of that movie and I was like, that's amazing. I've never seen a movie, a big Hollywood movie that's supposed to be kind of the revenge thing end like that. And I walked out with these five friends, all believers all love Jesus. So what do you guys think? The worst movie I've ever seen. Why didn't he kill him? I was waiting for him to shoot them all. What was that? And I looked at him and I said, do you see that was a beautiful picture of Jesus? And they're all like, hey, it makes a terrible movie. Like, and I just remember being like, you gotta be kidding. But we're so ingrained. We're so ingrained that when we read Jesus's words, when what he says, 
Right? And, and I want you to see the connection there. Because he says, blessed are the meek. The meek is constrained power that's trusting in God, that knows who he is. That even when it goes, I don't think that makes sense. I'm going to trust what God says. I'm going to hold my fleshly instinct here and let God be the one that steps out and leads me in this. And so we miss it oftentimes because we don't, we're we're more uh, discipled by the culture, but then we also let our flesh kind of get ramped up and take the lead. And so you can say that, and, and, and and I say this to you, and you hear that, and he says, turn the other cheek. And do all these things. And you go, yeah, but that's still kind of naive. And there's a lot of situations that doesn't work. And you go, that's really hard. And I don't know how that would work out. And we can quickly, in our flesh and in our culture and the way we think, come up with all kinds of excuses on why that doesn't work. But I want you to really think about this for just a second. Before, before we do that, think about what Jesus says. I want you to just read one verse here. In verse 41, he says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Do you know what he's talking about there? He's actually using different examples. Jesus always does this. He uses very clear examples that his audience would have known. He's the greatest teacher who ever lived. He meets them right where they are, right in the midst of what they're struggling with. Do you know what he's talking about when he says, force you to go one mile, you go two. Remember, at this time, Israel and the place where Jesus lived and his people as a Jewish person had been conquered by the Romans. They were uh, a, a people that was being ruled by an outside force that had come in and brutally taken over, right? I've mentioned this a couple of times as we're going through the Gospels. They taxed you to the tune of 80%. If you said anything bad about them or you, you tried to rebel, you got killed publicly. And that's how they kept the peace. You cross us and we put you on a cross in the street for everybody to see so you know who's boss. That's how you kept the peace in Rome. And that's where they lived, And so I want you to imagine being in a place where a foreign country comes in, overtakes our country, starts to tax you at 80%. If you say anything bad, they kill you. That's where you're living. Now, a Roman soldier could come up to anyone at any time and say, here, carry my military pack. And you had to pick it up. You had to drop what you were doing, whatever you were doing. You could be at work. You could be with your kids. You could have your day off. And they go, pick up my pack and let's go. And you, by law, had to carry it a mile. And if you didn't carry it a mile, they could kill you. They could throw you in jail. The soldier would be perfectly justified to kill you on the spot. And so Jesus is saying, when you're forced to go one mile, when that soldier hands you your pack, instead of just doing your duty begrudgingly, go with him too. You show him what the love of God looks like. You show him what my kingdom looks like. You go with him two miles. And so when we start to hear the things that Jesus says and we go, well, that would never work in our day. Please don't dismiss the things he says. I want you to think about who he was speaking to and what they were dealing with and what he's calling us to. And it's something really high, really high. And those are the reasons we miss it. We go, well, that doesn't work. It's not what my flesh thinks. It's not what my culture says. And so how do we get to that? How do we recover meekness? Right. And I want you to see the connection there. Meekness is I can hold my tongue and I can have that quiet confidence and I can trust God even when it seems so out of sorts. He's got me in this. It's okay if I carry his pack two miles. Maybe maybe I carry his pack two miles and I strike up a conversation and we become friends. That's not easy. 
It's not easy in that moment. So how do you get to that place? And the answer is this is all a heart issue. Look at what he says in verses 21 to 24. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, but whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering a gift at the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift before the altar and go and be reconciled and then and come, come and offer your gift. What's he talking about? He starts with murder and he says, you've heard it said you're not supposed to murder. And everybody goes, yeah, yeah okay, we got that. We, we were together on that. And he says, but I'm telling you, it's far deeper than that. It's a heart issue. Murder never starts with murder. Murder starts with hate that you hold in your heart. And he said, so if you have something against your brother and there's unforgiveness and you're not doing that, you need to go deal with that. And Jesus is going to do this all the way through the gospels. He's going to put to the heart underneath the action. He doesn't care just about the action. He cares about your heart. And so we start to think about how do we recover meekness? How do we get to that place? A heart change has to take place. And I want you to realize how serious this is. He uses an example here that sounds outrageous if you know what he's saying. You go to the temple to make your sacrifice and you recognize there's something in your heart against your brother. He says, leave it and go be reconciled. Think about where he is. He's preaching this sermon about 60 miles from Jerusalem. Right? We, we use this the first couple of weeks. Right? Jerusalem's like downtown Atlanta to Dahlonega. And you had to walk three day journey. You take three days. You go down there to make your sacrifice. Jesus says you get there. You're about to make your sacrifice and you remember you got something against your brother. Leave it. Go be reconciled and then come back. Add six more days to your journey. And you go, well, that's crazy. Nobody's going to do that. But do you understand what he's saying? The seriousness of our heart Involved in this, that all of this stuff, the outworking of it, that what's underneath that is our heart. It's a heart issue when we hate our brother and we don't forgive this person. When we're not meek, when we're like, I'm going to let them have it and I'm going to go at them and I'm going to do a right. That's a heart issue. I'm not trusting that God's in control and he's got this and I feel like I've got to make it happen. It's a heart issue that's there. So how do we recover true biblical meekness? And the answer is a heart change has to take place. Our heart has to be softened. Our heart of stone has to go to a heart of flesh, right? That's the image that we see in the Old Testament. And I want you to think about that for a second. A heart of stone has to go to... Have you ever seen a giant stone that's got to be moved, right? I don't know if you ever done. We, we uh, built a swimming pool a couple of years ago and they give you a quote and they get done. And they go, oh, but by the way, if we start digging it and there's a giant rock, it's going to cost twice as much. <laughs> Thankfully, there wasn't a giant rock in our yard or we wouldn't have a pool. But but what they say is you get to this giant rock and you know what happens. How do you break up a giant rock? You have to take and bore a big hole in the middle of that rock and then you put explosives down inside of it and you blow it up. It breaks it into pieces. But if you don't bore that hole down into the middle of the rock, do you know what happens? You set dynamite or explosives on top of a rock. What happens? Makes a loud noise and a lot of stuff goes everywhere and the rock's still sitting there fine. Right? Because it hasn't penetrated down to the middle where that explosive really takes action and breaks it up. The same is true of us. Every single one of us. 
until the gospel penetrates your heart of stone and gets down in the inner core of your being, none of the things Jesus says, says here makes any sense. Turn the other cheek. Right? Love your enemies and pray for them. Go the extra mile. <laughs> I'm not doing that. You know why? Because the gospel hasn't reached the center of your heart yet. Because the, the gospel, the good news is that you are more sinful than you ever want to admit. But the perfect, holy, righteous, loving God of the universe is more gracious than you possibly could imagine. And he's come to do for you what you could never, ever do for yourself. That he knows all your faults. He knows all the times that you've read his word and you contemplate it and you went, well, that's not going to work. I'm going to go do what I think I'm going to do. And he knows every bit of that. And he knows all the times that you've done that. And he sees you in the midst of your sin and he says, I'm going to come and lay down my life for you. I'm going to come take your sin upon me and I'm going to give you my perfect righteousness, the perfect life I live in which Jesus uh, resisted every temptation and every sin and continued to turn the cheek and continued to love every person that he came into contact with, continued to go the extra mile all the way to death. And he did it for you. And he offers it to you by grace through faith. And when you come to faith in him, he comes and lives with you and in you. And he says, I'm going to remake you from one degree of glory to another. And you're going to go, Jesus, but that, you don't know what they said to me. And he goes, it's the same thing you said to me. Oh, yeah. That is me. I'm exactly like that. You go, but those people over there. And he goes, yeah, you do the exact same thing. And you go, oh, yeah. And the grace of God starts to change your heart. And the level at which you see that, I am more sinful than I ever wanted to admit. But I am more loved than I ever could imagine. When those things come together, the idea of going the extra mile goes, ah, of course. I get to show people what Jesus is like. And that's what he's like. It's what the God of the universe is like. I know I cry a lot. <laughs> I can't tell you like this to me is like it's the answer. Our world is a mess. And it breaks my heart when I see people like Screw being meek. It's not how you get things done. I want to go, but that's not what Jesus says. It's not what he tells us. And if we as his people hold fast to the gospel, and we hold to the truth of that, and we let it penetrate our hearts, and we love people in the way Jesus loves us, change will happen. You don't have to go, well, that's not going to work. We've got to follow the way the world works. No. We are called to be a light. A city set on a hill. We're called to exclaim the excellencies of the one who called us out of the darkness. We're to be the ones that go, oh, I'm going to bite my tongue and I'm going to be gracious. And I'm going to be kind. And I'm going to show people what Jesus is like. 
And I truly believe this. All the things that we want to see happen and we often go, well, the only way that's going to happen is I've got to embrace all these bad things. They will actually happen if we just trust Jesus. And so blessed are the meek. They will inherit the earth. That's true. It's going to come in fullness. And we get to be a part of it right now. And so my prayer for each one of us is that we go deeper into the gospel. We continue to press it down into our heart. And we want to respond with anger. We go, no, it's not what Jesus did for us. We continue to let the gospel transform us from one degree of glory to another. We continue to hold to what Paul says in Romans 1. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation. It's the power of God to change the world. Oh, would that be the truth that we cling to each and every day? Would you pray with me? God, we thank you that you love us so much that you've come to do for us what we could never, ever do for ourselves. Would you remind us each and every day the reality of that truth? Would we hold fast to that in everything that we do and everything that we are? I pray that when we want to go against the things that you tell us, We want to rely on our own wisdom or the wisdom of the age or what our world says that you would just remind us what you've done for us and who we are in you, that we would live out of our identity in you, that you are now in us and with us in all things, and it would be all about your glory. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.